Okay, thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. This is, this is who I am. Um, I'm down there as a wildlife crime officer. It's a role within Thames Valley Police, which um, is a voluntary role. Uh, I do it alongside my main job, uh, which is actually as an antisocial behaviour officer. So um, there are quite some comparisons between the two, I have to say that. And we try to use some antisocial behaviour legislation in dealing with some of our wildlife issues. Uh, and we'll come on to that a little bit later with hair coursing, where we're able to use the powers that I'm aware of and can use quite usually through the courts to actually stop people uh, committing some of these crimes. What's wildlife crime? Well, it covers a whole multitude. I mean, it really does, from, you know, from ants to aardvarks to whales, if need be. It doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be um, indigenous to this country. We deal with an awful lot of endangered species, uh, exotic species, live, dead, whatever, derivatives, every form you like to meet, including plants. Um, so the, the whole, what do we have to learn? And am, I, am, I, am I an expert? No, I'm not. But I know a lot of people who are, and that's where it comes into. If I need an expert for something, certainly anything to do with plants, I'll go straight to Q, and they will they'll get the experts out from there. Equally, for some of these endangered species, and, and although this isn't endangered and certainly not indigenous to Oxfordshire, you know, um, an emerald tree viper is quite common in this country, certainly within the pet trade. And that's where some of mine comes in, is um, working within the pet shop trade, is seeing where some snakes such as this are being sold and where they're being kept and who's got them. Now, all those, these don't come under a dangerous wild animals uh, licence. We still like to know the amount of trade coming in and out. So we work very closely with customs, very closely with district councils who provide pet shop licences, really to, just to follow trades in this. What do we do? We do actually have some national wildlife priorities, um, believe it or not, with bat persecution, badger persecution, CITES endangered species, that's the controlling trade of endangered species, freshwater pearl mussels, raptor persecution, and poaching. Now, if you'd said, what, do we get, what don't we get in Oxfordshire, it will definitely be the freshwater pearl mussels. We don't have that issue here, um, but it is an issue further elsewhere in the UK. Um, it's quite a narrow field, and it's down to quite a few small rivers, but indeed, but uh, we do have an issue with it. Um, everything else, yes, we cover, and sometimes on a daily basis. So I can go in in the morning, and there could be two or three phone calls that have been made on my answer phone already. This morning I was out looking at a badger set in South Lee, uh, near Whitney. Uh, a very active badger set. We managed to get out there quite early on. Uh, someone is using it as a motorcycle ramp uh, on a course, and um, you know it's well off the beaten track. You wouldn't normally know it's happened, but a walker has found it, and we will work on that. We will set up a camera. We will make certain and find out who it is, you know, because Badger Act, people just think it's the badger that's protected. It's not. It's the whole set, um, everywhere it lives, and that sets, this is quite an extensive set. Um, and we've done all we need to do um, to find out whether it's an active set, and it is a very active set, to say the least. So we're working there. So things like that come in on a daily basis. The same with bat persecution. Uh, normally, it comes into me probably a year after it's happened, after a bat roost has been disturbed, because we're the last ones to get called. And it normally happens when uh, you've got a developer who's uh, got this old barn, and he gets told, well, there's a bat roost in there. And he thinks, what do I do? What do I do? Do I take the £5,000 fine or do I just stop my £3 million development? Let's strip the roof and strip the bats. No one will know. But records are quite good in regard to bats. And we can do persecution. If there's a bat uh, roost that's been recorded there, it's no longer there now, and the developer didn't do anything about it, then we will take them to court. And we have been quite successful with those. But normally, unfortunately for us, we're not there at the beginning. If we're there at the beginning, we can do a lot more than just mopping up afterwards. Um, certainly to do with endangered species, we've got some endangered species along here. Uh, Cites animals, uh, it's a growing trade. It's uh, you know, the exotic species that are being sold live in this country uh, and their derivatives. It's a huge business. And while there's a huge business, then unfortunately crimes will be carried out. Raptor persecution... Um, unfortunately, Oxfordshire is still very high in the numbers of raptors, 
buzzards, red kites that are being poisoned and shot. Um, we've had three. We've got three uh, current cases on the go. Um, two of those are at uh, London Zoo at the moment, having post mortems because that's what we do. We we work very closely with the RSPB, and they all go to London Zoo to to have a post mortem. Um, some of the ones that have come back recently, one was just come back recently, and we thought it had been shot or poisoned. It hadn't. It had actually been electrocuted. Quite naturally, it, it obviously landed on some sort of uh, you know high voltage. And that's what killed it. So, but we, 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 we check all these things out. And if we can prosecute, we will. We certainly will. Poaching. Poaching is a very much an emerging issue with um, the current climate. Um, with money very tight, we tend to find we've got a lot of deer poaching going on. And not just the odd person who's just going out and shooting one. It's quite commercial deer poaching. You know, people are coming down... Uh, into this area from outside of Oxfordshire and they're actually coming down with vehicles that are adapted for storage of carcasses before they're driven away. So, you know, it's how much do you get for a, for a carcass? Well, not much actually. Only about £25 for a deer carcass. But they're quite, you know, they won't care whether it's, a, it's young, old, female, male or whatever. They just want the carcass. And sometimes it's not a clean shot. It's, you know, they'll shoot it, it'll be injured, and they then set their dogs to hunt it down. And then they will dispatch it, because deer don't always drop dead there and then. They have a tendency to run. Right, some of the incidents we, we, we deal with within the Thames Valley. This is a military orchid. Um, I wouldn't say it's Oxfordshire. We're just over the border into Buckinghamshire, down near Henley. Uh, Bee Bount Reserve. Uh, the only place in this country where military orchids grow of, of, of this particular type. Of, there's one other place in um, in East Anglia where military orchids, but there's a lot, lot of hot dispute between orchid experts whether it is a real military orchid, but this one is, apparently. Um, this is the sort of case that comes in on a, on, on a Monday morning. I had a phone call from the from B Bounce saying, we've had this person in, he's just been disturbed, and he's pulled up nine of these plants. Well... You know, this is the only place they grow in. This is a bee bound reserve. Each of these plants has actually got a big wire mesh around them. So it's not as if they're just growing wild. They are fully protected. There's lots of signs up there in the car park saying what's likely to happen if you're caught disturbing, if you're caught digging these up. This gentleman was disturbed purely simply by a dog walker. Uh, he was walking back to his car with a plastic bag with uh, nine blooms sticking out. He dug them up with a, with a little spade. Um, he automatically threw them at the gentleman, got into his car and sped off. Now, unfortunately, the, the plants don't regrow. And uh, even though they, were got, they got back into the ground pretty quick, uh, they didn't survive. The gentleman took the car's number. We were able to track that car um, to Shropshire. Um, these cameras you see on the motorway, the automatic number plate cameras, uh, we could clock him coming into. Thames Valley area on the M40 and going out between the relevant times. So it was, it was pretty good. We got the right number. Working with the National Wildlife Crime Unit, which is a, a fairly new unit that's based, although it's based in Scotland, it covers the whole of the UK. Um, it's quite a small unit, but um, that's where our experts come in. Um, and working very closely with them, um, we, we, we managed to go to Shropshire early one morning um, do a dawn raid. We didn't need to knock the door or kick the door in because as soon as we drew up, the gentleman opened the door and said, I've been waiting for you. Um, an elderly gentleman, no previous convictions whatsoever, um, immediately said, yes, it was me, and um, should we go to the police station? I don't want to wake my wife up. So uh, by which time, with six policemen in his kitchen... Uh, and a lot of noise and everything else, his wife came down and she just turned around and said, you've been doing silly things with orchids again, haven't you? Well, it might have been just quite an open-shut case, but what we did, it was the first um, prosecution of its case in the, uh, kind of in the UK. Um, before, people hadn't realised that you know, orchids were there to be stolen, and people just thought, oh, well, some, some years they come, some years they don't. Um, but working with this gentleman and working through maps that we found in his room, in his house, we were able to find out that he actually had gone to most of the nature reserves around the country, just at the same time when all these are in bloom, and he'd actually done some preparatory visits in previous years, so he knew exactly where he wanted to go. 
because uh, in fact, after being disturbed with this one, he'd actually hadn't shot straight out of the counter, he'd actually gone to another reserve to look for a green winged orchid that he wanted to plant into his garden. That was his motivation. It's not money, even though these probably would retail for £150-£250 on a black market. There is a market in for, in for these. Um, he just wanted to grow them into his garden, plant in the garden. He had a beautiful garden, I have to say that, a really wild, natural garden, and it did have several species of orchids in there. Unfortunately, we couldn't say where those orchids had come from, um, but they certainly weren't indigenous to Shropshire, shall we say. Um, what happens to him? Well, I'm, uh, I would have liked him to go to court, um, but the way the prosecution and Crown Prosecution Service is at the moment, and, and the way it, it, it works in this country, if you've no previous convictions, you admit your guilt. Um, what happened, he had a police caution. Um, even though each of the plants that he took is liable to a fine of £5,000 per plant and six months' imprisonment. So if, if the court had gone the whole way, he could have got six months' imprisonment and up to £45,000 fine. That's the, that's the ultimate, which, which the courts have the power to do. So um, we got quite a lot of uh, press for that, which was quite good, and all of a sudden they've now got intelligence coming in from around the country within different forces, um, so a lot, of the, a lot more orchids are actually monitored now. Again, and nothing else that's not indigenous to this county. Uh, Squirrel Monkey, Cotswold Wildlife Park, if you've ever been there. Um, we had a burglary. A burglary involving the theft of squirrel monkeys. Uh, this is one of the squirrel monkeys that was stolen. Um, quite, you know, quite, quite a, an adventurous crime, broken overnight. These are only very small monkeys, but um, if you don't know what you're handling, you will get a very nasty bite. Uh, we think they tried to break in because they had some young. They had some very, very small babies, which is the ones they wanted. But we're not aware they've been taken out. That, uh, they take it, take them out at night uh, to keep them somewhere warm. All they got were two very old females who weren't awake enough to run straight out of the enclosure into the cage. The young ones did, and they couldn't catch them. The two uh, older females were still fast asleep. We think so. They were the only ones they grabbed, uh, put into a recycling bin, straight away uh, got out. What was good is we managed to get it into the national press very, very quickly. Uh, we got it onto BBC. A lot of the national press picked it up very quickly and, and it actually went onto the national news, which is great because the people who had taken them all of a sudden found they hadn't got a market for them. So lo and behold, later on that evening, um, the Cotswold Wildlife Park got a phone call saying, um, I've, I've just been into a pub and a bloke sold me these monkeys. I think they may be yours. Uh, would you like to buy them back? Um, so they wanted some money for them, they wanted to hold them to ransom, and um, the Cotswold Wildlife Park quite rightly said, no, we just want the monkeys back, we don't care, we're, what, you know, we're not interested in you or anything else, um, we just want the monkeys back. And they're only actually five miles down the road, by the side of the road, in this bin with a brick on them. Very cold, very unhappy, um, but we managed to get them back within the 48 hours, because 48 hours outside the troop, they won't be re-accepted back even though these are the mothers and grandmothers. So we managed to get them back pretty quickly, and um, they're all very happy. Um, what did intrigue us is that, we, what did we do with this recycling? Well, we want to try and find out who's done it. So we actually gave the recycling bin to our scenes of crime officers, and they said they could find a few smudge marks on the outside, but about 3,000 on the inside. Um, but they were very small. Um, so, so we've actually got some of these on, on our database now, which was quite funny. Um, but again, there's a market for them, you know, um, for, and these were stolen to order. That's the bottom line. Three or four days later, there was an exact replica of uh, the burglary at a zoo in France. You know, did we know who'd taken them? Well, yeah, we had a good idea because, again, it's a very narrow market for people who steal animals such as these. You know, you've got to, so, so we were about to go up to South Yorkshire um, very excitedly to try and find these people when they came back. So, was it them? Very probably. But we've got no proof of those. But again, it's a very narrow market. The market in uh, monkey thefts is, is quite high, believe it or not. We do get them quite regularly. And again, they tend to go to private, tri private zoos. Uh, so again, stolen to order. This is a Goffin's cockatoo. 
uh, a very rare cockatoo and um, it's normally only found now in an island in Indonesia. So when they come into this country, you tend to want to know where they've come from. Have they been wild caught? Have they been captive bred? Now this was sold at a pet shop in Maidenhead um, as captive bred uh, and as uh, two years old. So the lady had paid £800 for it, because that's about what, how much they cost. She bought it, got it home and thought, gosh, um, I'll just check the ring and number and everything else. It's why has it only got claws on one feet? There were no claws on it. Well, there were no claws on it because it had been declawed to get that ring on it. Uh, she took it to a vet who said, well, she bought it as a, as a female, three-year-old female, two to three-year-old female, and took it to the vet who said, yeah, it's a ten-year-old male. So um, her breeding program had gone completely up the creek by this stage. Um, so we then worked our way back through the pet shop where they got it from. It led us to uh, working very closely with customs in Holland because that's where it had come in from. The paperwork suggested it had all come in from Holland. Uh, and uh, the Dutch police um, did some enforcement work over there. What happened to it? Well, I don't have any way of looking after a Goffin's cockatoo. It stays with the lady, even though the paperwork with it is not correct at this time. But working closely with DEFRA, who register these animals, um, she's in the best place to keep it, uh, until f probably until further notice. Hares. As we said before, part of my role is I deal with um, hunting issues, and that's the hunting of anything. Hunting with dogs and hunting uh, hares. They're our main issues in the Thames Valley. The majority of the issues we deal with are, is hare coursing. Uh, again, made illegal with the Hunting Act. And this causes us quite concern and quite a lot of fear within the community. Um, the people who come and do hair coursing, and they don't come from locally, they tend to come from outside the county, from West Mercia, from South Wales, um, to come and course their dogs. Um, what we tend to do is once we find them they're guilty, they will lose their car, they will lose their dogs, and they will, they will get a restraining order keeping them outside of Oxfordshire for two years, as well as a hefty fine. And we tend to, you know, we, we try to, to do as much as we can over a wide spectrum of... of enforcing this act. Now, although I live in North Oxfordshire, our fields up there are full of hares, but the fields are quite small. And the fields as you go down towards the Ridgeway and into West Berkshire um, tend to be much bigger, which is what they like. They like to do what happens is they film their dogs coursing these hares. Hares are not particularly bright, I have to say that. Um, you know, it's, they will just sit there, close their eyes and hope no one sees them. Uh, but they will come up behind them, slip the dogs, and it will be the first dog to get it. And what they do is they either bet on the outcome, or they will film it to see for breeding purposes, to say, look how fast my dog is. You know, you breed with your dog, we'll make a super fast dog. And that's where they, the money turns over. The people who do the hair coursing are also people who do dog fighting, um, cock fighting. You know, these sports, that, or sports in, in, in inverted commas, that we think have all gone, they haven't. They're still out and about. And the money made in hair coursing is worth thousands and thousands. The difficulty for the police force is that they can be there for five minutes, ten minutes, move on. And normally by the time we get a report in, we're always chasing behind them. So we work very closely with um, the RSPCA. The RSPCA have a special operations unit that uh, deals specifically with these types of groups. So uh, with a planned operation, we do get quite a lot of success and from keeping them outside the county. Excuse me. Yep. If we say, just off on the off chance, happen to see something like this, yep. I mean, the only number we know to ring is 999. That's, and that's the number you ring. Okay. That's the number you ring. And we'd certainly say, don't confront these people. Just get the car number. If you can get a car number, don't stop. If you get the car number, drive on, ring it in. You know, and even if it's not 999 on the 0845 number, again, any little bit of intelligence and information we can act on. If we have the car number, it gives me the intelligence to actually go into it a lot deeper and concentrate on the owner of the vehicle, because they're not always their vehicles. They might have borrowed them for the afternoon, but it's the owner who will start getting it in the neck, because he won't get his vehicle back once it's seized, I have to say that. Again, uh, Raptor poisoning. This is uh, a buzzard now near Steventon. Uh, this was a shot one. Uh, again, it was uh, on an old army range uh, where everybody walked their dogs, but there was a 
some oak trees which were perfect for the local buzzard population to come and sit late at night. And unfortunately they were silhouetted against the, 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 the sunlight and it made it easy for local youth with air rifles. And that's what all this was. This wasn't um, controlling a pest or anything like that. This is just young people taking pot shots. Um, I have got one on, another one on the go at the moment with a buzzard which we think is, has been possibly poisoned. Uh, you tend to find if they have been poisoned, they die very quickly from where they've been poisoned. The poison is such as they're normally legal pesticides in illegal concentrates. So you tend to find as soon as they've eaten it, they will die there and then. So you tend to find them very close to whatever bait's been put down. And we have got a glut of buzzards. We have got a glut of red kites. No matter how you know, fantastic they are, we have got a lot in, within the countryside. And there, is some, there are some amongst the farming community um, that w would, would like to see a cull of buzzards. Um, that's not likely to happen, but you know, that, that's the sort of things that people think about. Um, people forget they live on carrion. You know, they're not there taking live praise or anything else. Um, they're there to clean up the countryside. So it's, it's an ongoing thing we have, and a lot of things we do is with education. Education, trying to educate people that that's what they do. You know, they're not, they won't take your lambs. We've had a report of red kites taking young lambs. Well, it'd never get off the ground, I have to say that. You know, yet they, are they capable of killing it? Yeah, they probably would be able to cap capable of killing a young lamb. It would have to be a very young lamb, though, almost newborn. Um, me, yeah. It would not only be young, it would be already ill. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what the farmers forget. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and you know, if one is stillborn, then fine. That's yeah. that's that's part and parcel of their role within, you know, the food chain. Um, but again, that's the sort of thing. Again, with the poaching, you know, we we have some record number of deer at the moment. Um, yeah, wild deer, uh, of course. Yes, it is, and you know it's it is one of the meats, and it perhaps is, you know with the outcome as we'll come on to a little bit later to do with TB and badgers, people forget that you know deer can also carry uh, TB, you know, and they there's, there's, they will roam wherever they want to roam. Um, so again, that might well be an emerging issue for certainly for us uh, as a police force in the future in, in certainly policing culls and things like that. Snowdrops. Now you might think, well, snowdrops, what, what is this that's coming to? Well, last week, um, if you noticed in the newspapers, a single bulb went for £350 on eBay. Um, it was a specific bulb, but these, these are valuable items. Um, you'll go around your countryside at the moment, and on the roadsides you'll see lots of snowdrops. Um, well, on foot, they are a valuable item. They will be stolen. There is a market for them. Well, what can we do within the police force? Um, what we will do, if we do get a report that a group or a whole lot of, of snowdrops have been dug up, and there have been cases where they, 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 these are very valuable, really, really valuable, how do we find well, where that snowdrops have come from? Well, what we will do, we do go to um, local garden centres and, and ask them where they got their snowdrops from. And vast majority, 99.9% .9 of... Um, people who sell these know exactly who their suppliers are and where they've come from and they haven't come in from the wild but we have we will do we will take soil samples to check to see whether you know there is something particular about those snowdrops that we can match on an area where we know they've gone you know and people do you know we did have one gentleman who actually did say i've lost some snowdrops well he did lose some snowdrops he lost about a quarter of an acre so how you suddenly realise, yeah, they've gone or whatever, but someone had come in and dug them all up. You know, and that's probably a value of over thirty, forty thousand pounds worth. You know, once you start putting money into these values, it, you suddenly you think, well, actually, there, yeah, this is real good crime. You know, and, it, and it's crime that people don't really notice it's happening. Yeah. No, no. Well, all flowers will be. It's, it's, it's the exactly the same with, um, you know, primroses, cowslips. You know, cowslips. We, you know, we have in Oxfordshire. We have these fantastic roadside nature reserves, Very, and it, it, you might think now that everybody has them. Well, they don't. Surrounding counties don't have them, but it means that you know we can drive around and see these things. But people still dig them up, thinking I'll put it into my garden because it will look lovely. You know, cowslips grow where they grow because that's the best place for them. 
You know, they, and I still can't quite over it how people go out and dig bluebells up to put them into their garden because ten years down the line they're trying to get rid of them, you know, because they've taken over. But again, all these are protected. They're all protected by the Theft Act. So, you know, it's, it's no different than shoplifting. It's no different than, you know, any other type of thing under the Theft Act. Uh, and, you know, and, and if we can prosecute, we will. We had a lady in the Witchwood Forest, um, ancient woodland, a triple SI, site of special scientific interest, who thought she'd go and get some autumn crocus, because she knows that they're lovely. And she was caught digging them up purely and simply because she thought they looked nice in her garden. You can go to a garden centre and buy them, you know, um, <laughs> that have been produced in Holland or wherever. You know, it's, but those, it, it, there are quite specific laws, certainly controlling those sites. Canada geese, uh, these are all dead, They're not, I haven't trained them to stay like that. Um, again, this was on a golf course, and a golf course where a contractor was asked to come and basically get rid of them, Well, which is quite legal. They can be culled because they are regarded as a pest, um, but this is how they were left. Um, so he actually breaks the law and, break, and breaks the, the rules of, of his contract or whatever, but under Wildlife and Countryside Act, there, there are certain rules and that he has to contend with, but he didn't, and he just hadn't, he'd shot so many, he just didn't have room in his, in his van to put any more in, you know. Um, so that's another little thing that comes our way, and uh, we have to deal with the contractor, we interview the contractor, uh, report them for summons, um, you know, it's, it's, it all takes time, unfortunately. This was down near, Hen uh, near Windsor. This is another issue, again, not, uh, not an indigenous, but this is an illegitimate macaw. Um, Ascites um, one animal, exceedingly rare, has the same um, protection as a tiger, same protection as a panda. Um, it's only this size, so it's one of the smallest macaws. And again, this, this, this was another job that came through a pet shop. And all macaws, and Ascites one, has to have something what's called an Article 10. Article 10, an Article 10 certificate. Issued, it's basically like a pet passport. So that will stay with that bird its whole life. Um, and if it's sold on, it must be notified who, who uh, DEFRA have to be notified who it's been sold on to. Um, this was a bought, a bought again in a pet shop for £900, didn't have an Article 10 certificate. Um, the lady kept on asking the pet shop owner, where is it, where is it? And it actually came across, and he kept on fun, fudging her off, oh, it's, it's somewhere, it's somewhere. So she came to us. Um, said this explained what had happened and it, that led to a raid of five pet shops um, involved 40 officers uh, and working with uh, the RSPCA because we were also looking at caged songbirds at the same time um, because the pet shop involved had the same thing we were quite concerned that they were wild caught songbirds not um, not been produced elsewhere within the business um, and there are ways you can tell whether they're wild caught wild caught um, birds or not. Uh, we had customs uh, and ex, uh, excise with us, or customs and revenue, um, and we had to take a vet in with us because we just had to make sure that if any birds or whatever were injured, we had to make sure they were very carefully looked after. A week before the raid, the five pet shops had about 200 parrots in there. So we thought this was quite good. We traced them back into coming into the country, again through Holland. Um, She's a bit of a loophole within the EU because um, parrots, when they're brought into the EU, only have to spend 48 hours in quarantine. In the UK, they have to spend six months. So we tend to find a lot of birds have flown into Europe, uh, Holland or Belgium, and within 40, after 48 hours, they're shipped into the country. And that's quite a, it's a, it's a loophole, but it's a, a legal loophole, unfortunately. But we traced these back, and there were some already question marks about where they'd been imported to into Holland. The Dutch customs um, already uh, were interested in it. And in fact, it was a bit like, um, a, bit like a film, really. We'd all decided we were all going in at 7 o'clock one morning uh, in here, in Holland, so no phone calls could be made backwards and forwards. I say a week before, there were 200 parrots. The day we went and knocked on the door, there wasn't one. Um, we'd missed them, gone, they, and they had been distributed around the country, basically, to different outlets, where other pet shops had bought them quite legitimately, quite in good faith, but um, how, how in good faith, I, I'm not too sure, because there was very little paperwork. So it then spread to, you know, around the country, but 
what the gentleman did say, and, and he, he lost it really, his, um, he lost all of his pet shops in one comment as we were leaving with a customs officer. He said, oh, don't worry, I, I never give a receipt for these parrots. I only take cash. So you can't prove anything. So six months back afterwards, we couldn't prove anything. He was right. But we did have some paperwork to say how many parrots he'd imported over the previous year. So we just gave that paperwork to Her Majesty's Customs and Revenue. They went back six months later and said, um, we've got all these invoices, where, where are your receipts? Well, I haven't got any. So they then estimated how much tax he should have paid on those. Uh, and unfortunately that led to him closing the pet shops because he, he, he'd lost so much money. Um, so one way or another, we'd have done it. I mean, we, we would have got him. And had we gone in the day and got 200 parrots, then we'd already had places where we could take the parrots to. You know, fortunately, we didn't have to because that would, it's a logistical nightmare. Um, and if any of you have ever tried to catch a parrot, it's, um, again, very, very difficult. And even though it's a small bird, those beaks are very powerful. Swans, um, you know, with the Thames going right the way through our police force, um, we do, unfortunately, do get quite a lot of swan crime be it being stoned, be it uh, fired at with catapults, bows and arrows, shot, you name it. Whichever way a swan can be killed, it has been killed. Um, does it have an owner? Yes, it does. The Queen owns, the, owns them all. So we do have a loss. So it, it, there is a specific crime to do with these, um, which does help us when we're getting our home office figures in, because this does relate to, you know, if you, if you have a loser, in this case Regina, um, you know, it does help us, and we, we do. And as it continues, yeah, it, it's sort of a continual drip, drip, drip involved with these. Some are just killed. Some are in. in some are actually eaten. Some are killed for food. You know, it's it's part of an issue we do have uh, within the very different ethnic backgrounds we have within the Thames Valley. Is there are some that regard anything uh, on water or anything like this as a food source, um, and it's quite difficult to get that across that you know, these are protected animals because in their own countries they aren't protected, and it, again, it's it's used as food, so it can be an issue. Venomous snakes. Now we don't. You might think, well, we have an issue here in. Uh, in Oxfordshire with venomous snakes. I do get quite a few calls for adders. If, if everyone I went to was an adder, we would be overrun. In fact, they're most, the vast majority are grass snakes, but even though you ask people, can you describe a snake to me? And I say, say yes, that's a grass snake. No, 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 it's definitely an adder, because I've seen it. I've seen an adder on, um, on Nature Watch or Autumn Watch or Spring Watch, and it's definitely an adder. What do I do? I say, well, you really do nothing. You know, you don't, it'll go away. You know, and, and they will. And, so, and especially with grass snakes. I've got a grass snake in my garden. Well, have you got a pond? Yes, I have. Well, that's the reason they've come into your garden. You know, don't worry, it's not going to hurt you. You know, even though some grass snakes, you know, grass snakes are quite frightening if you disturb it because they do rear up like a cobra. And they will hiss quite loudly. So um, I found that out in my own garden when my wife suddenly screamed because she thought it was a cat, our cat was rustling about close to her. And it wasn't. It was quite a young um, grass snake that had come into the garden and had actually risen quite up and, and hissed quite a lot. So it wouldn't have hurt her. You know, a, a full-grown full one couldn't give you a nasty bite if you really disturb it. But most snakes will go out the way. This is a, a, a thing that I have an issue with at the moment, and a case. A, an on, it's not an ongoing case, it's an ongoing issue for me. Uh, we've got a green mamba, we've got a fur de lance, we've got a pit viper, and we've got a rattlesnake. Now, you might think we don't have these in Oxfordshire. We do. We have a pet shop I'm dealing with at the moment that sells these over the internet, quite legally. Um, but he's got a room, um, quite a small room, where at the moment he's got 29 different species of these snakes. Um, and I have to say they're the most venomous snakes in the world he's got. The fur de lance, he's got a pair of fur de lance, the most aggressive venomous snake you'd ever hope to meet. It really is. It just wants to bite you. Uh, and he's got someone who's coming to buy a pair of these off him for breeding purposes. Now, why on earth you would want a snake like that, I, ha I have to say, is, you know, is beyond me. But you know, to be in there when they're not in particularly secure containers... And you've got, you know, all these different snakes. Uh, we're coming into them into the breeding season. They're quite lively, you know. And you've got six, eight feet long cobras. Um, 
you know, it's, and I don't like snakes at the best of time, I have to say that. And there's very little you can do. You know, if they, if they get out, what are you going to do? And we said to the gentleman, I said, how do you move them around? And he said, oh, I just get my snake stick and I just get it out and put it on the floor, pick it up by the tail and just move it around. You know, I say, well, well yeah, it's fantastic, but, you know, what happens if it doesn't want to be picked up and will go for you and bite you? And he doesn't carry anti-venom. They don't carry stocks of anti-venom. He's very fortunate that Elo works in, he lives in West Oxfordshire. We're very close to Oxford University, which holds the UK's store of anti-venom. So if you're going to get bitten, this is the best place in the world to get bitten. I have to say that. But, you know, you don't want to get bitten by any of these because the chances are you won't get too far. Yeah. Yeah. So when it's like, if you buy us and Yeah. What, what you'd have to do, well, yeah, what you'd have to do before you could buy one of these, you'd have to be, you'd have to hold a dangerous wild animals license, so which would prove that you knew what you were doing, whether you've got an expertise in these snakes or not. But you, you have to be registered with your local council as a dangerous wild animal. You couldn't just go in and say, "I want one of those," and he wouldn't sell them to you. He would only sell them to people he's happy to sell them to. You know, we did get a report um, the year before last um, in High Wycombe. And um, people were, someone was putting up, lost, King Cobra, please ring this number if seen. And people were ringing me and saying, oh, we've got this thing for King, uh, lost a King Cobra. What's a King Cobra? Is it dangerous? This is the police control room. And I said, well, it's known as a 50-step snake. And they said, what do you mean by 50-step snakes? I said, that's how many steps you can take before you die after you've been bitten. Because they're, they, one, they're very large. Two, they're incredibly venomous. Uh, and three, we don't have any. I have to say that. So we checked the places in, in this country who had them, and they still had them. So there are, there are some in some zoos. There aren't any, in, as far as we're aware, in private hands, because it's not the snake you keep. I have to say that, because they can be 12, 13 foot long. You know, and these are very, very big snakes. Um, so we, as far as we're aware, there aren't any in the UK in private hands. That's not to say there aren't, but this is the sort of thing. And it was just a hoax. But it was quite a good hoax, I have to say that. So it's, uh, especially when we told people exactly what this snake could do, you know, there was this sort of horror. So my, my worry is what would happen if these got out? Well, you know, do we have sort of species like this out in the wilds? We do get reports of boa constrictors. We do get reports of pythons, royal pythons. We had a case in, in Chalbury where a lady was out walking with her husband through the centre of Chalbury, lovely market town. Um, on the edge of the Cotswolds and lo and behold she found this seven foot snake coming up the gutter browns and, and light browns, dark browns beautifully patterned she managed for her husband, I don't know how she did it but she got her husband to actually put it into a box how, I, how, how he did this I don't know but we've got a call uh, we go around there and there's a, a cardboard box and it's got a brick on top and the brick is moving up and down so she says, I'll just take the brick off so you can see it. And we say, no, 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 leave it on. So we peered through a gap because we'd, we'd gone through the, no, it wasn't a grass snake. No, it wasn't an adder. And boy, it was, it was quite big. And uh, eventually we just said, leave it on. We'll take it out. Yeah, so we got it back into a secure uh, varium, emptied it into it. And it was a royal python, um, six to seven feet long, had overwintered, had just come out of hibernation, uh, was, not in, was, was pretty aggressive because it was very hungry. Um, fortunately, the colleague I was with kept snakes, um, so had some frozen chicks in his freezer so we could feed it to keep it happy for the time being. And, but what do we do with a snake like that? Because no zoo would want it, uh, nobody would want it. What would happen is we'd probably get it euthanised. Um, but he, being in the snake world, actually knew someone who was looking for a female royal python. It was in very, very poor condition because previously it had been kept in a, a, basically the only heat it had got was on, a night, was on a light bulb. So it had some incredible bad burns on its body. Um, but once it, it, it got rid of that skin, um, it shed its skin, um, it was good as new. Uh, you know, and the happy ending in this is that it did find a mate and it did produce more that had gone off into the pet trade somewhere along the line. But normally we, we, we would end up having euthanized. Yes? Well, it depends, on, it depends on, on our winters. If we have a really mild winter, there's no reason why that can't you know, survive. Well, these couldn't survive. Um, 
you know, and there was a there was a case not so long ago uh, of a 12-foot python. Someone found it, 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 the police were called to in Shropshire that had overwintered. Um, you know, and there's enough you know, things out there like pheasants and rabbits and things like that for these animals to survive on. And why are they out in the wild? Well, because people can't look after them. You know, people will go to a pet shop and buy a corn snake that's this big, not realising they will grow to this big. And once they get to that size, if they're not in the right, you know, size container or vivarium, you know, they get quite aggressive, especially if they're not fed regularly or not handled regularly. They can get quite aggressive and people say, I don't want them anymore. And there's nothing they can do with them. Nobody wants them. And unfortunately, what we do do is that people are, you know, do, do actually just release them into the wild and hope for the best. You know, we did have a case of, um, in the centre of Oxford, Carfax Tower. There was a report one night of a, a man had been bitten by a snake. The snake was in the doorway. Um, officers got there. The gentleman was exceedingly um, rude. He was exceedingly drunk, but exceedingly aggressive. I've been bitten by the snake. There's the snake there. So the officers looked at the snake and decided, and someone who actually, an officer who actually knew their snakes, saw it and knew it was a corn snake. Non-venomous. Didn't tell the gentleman that, though, because he was so aggressive, I have to say that. And they got him to, well, they took him to hospital because, you know, because they had to just doubly make sure. He was really aggressive and abusive to the, to, to the staff at the hospital. Again, they didn't tell him it was non-venomous and, um, until, it, until about an hour later once he'd calmed down. But again, this is how on earth did that get in the centre of Oxford, you know? It had obviously escaped uh, from somewhere or someone had taken it with them and let it go. You know, this is the sort of the, the, the new emerging issues rather than the badgers and the otters and things like that that we have to deal with. It's, it's the emerging issues of those. So these are ongoing things. Songbird trapping. Another thing, it's, it's quite an old worldy thing, but does continue. Uh, this is what we found. Uh, this is, again, this is in West Oxfordshire. Uh, someone had reported uh, in, a, in a sort of a, 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 part of the, a part of a house that backed onto a house of field, they'd seen this trap, songbird trap, um, and we got there, went in there with the RSPCA on a search warrant. This was on top of this, there was one on top of that uh, sort of container, sort of, uh, it, it's, it's not a sort of container, I was going to say like a caravan, but it's not, it's just like a shed really on wheels. And, and there was another one over to this side. Um, inside that, you've got this, you've got several cages, um, and that's what we found in there. Wild caught goldfinch. Now you think, why on earth do people catch wild you know, why, What's so special about goldfinches? Well, one, they have a beautiful song. Two, they're 75 pounds. That's what the going rate for those would be in a pub in London. And there are pubs in London which people go around with these in little boxes and sell them. And that's the reason why there's money to be made from them. You know, it's not just goldfinches. You will have greenfinches. You will have any types of songbirds from linnets as well, especially around, around West Oxfordshire. You know, we have quite a few feeding stations. And the ring that's on there, the ring relates to nothing. It doesn't relate to anything, but it puts a, an air of legitimacy to say, oh yeah, that's captive bred. Not to worry, it's captive bred. Well, at the moment it looks captive bred, but give it a couple of weeks, you'll find that there's some start, the beak starts to get damaged, where the bird is trying to get out through the cage. Uh, so you tend to find there's damage to the beak where the bird's getting quite stressed and, and, you know, and that's an indicator that, we, that there is, you know, it, it, it is wild caught. Um, again, a uh, gentleman couldn't really say much more because it was his garden. <laughs> so he couldn't say it had been planted or anything else. But again, he was making a little living out of it. Uh, and it, very easy to do, I have to say that, because surrounding where he was living was um, all the all the right teasels, uh, and he'd actually grown teasels to entice these birds in, you know, and, and I have to say they are easy to capture, they really are, because they, you know, if you get the right food source, they will flock. What's going to happen in the future? This is part of the future. Um, what we did uh, earlier this year, we went and checked every pet shop in the Thames Valley area who was selling tortoises. And we all went in, well, I didn't say we all went in on one day, because it was only me and someone else who went in. We travelled around the Thames Valley in over two days, going to each, each pet shop and seeing, we knew they were selling them, because they have to, they register as selling tortoises. And particularly on the, what the types of it is, a Herman's tortoise, Spurthoid tortoise, um, specifically, 
And again, these need the correct paperwork from DEFRA, which are Article 10 certificates, to say where they've been bred, where they've, where, you know, again, they're not being wild caught. Because the trade in these is absolutely huge. New baby ones will sell £450 at this size. You know, you get a breeding male or female that's you know, 10, 15 years old, you're talking many hundreds of pounds. That's what they're worth. And most, most of these now are microchipped. They have a, a bit of a microchip underneath the, the back of the shell, back of the neck, underneath where it's microchipped and exactly like a dog or anything else. You put a scanner over it, you can read it exactly what it is. The microchip is the same number that's on the Article 10 certificate. So we went around the whole of the Thames Valley because it was part of a national operation, I think called Operation Ramp, um, to do with the whole of this trade. And out of something like 800 visits that happened around the country, there were only seven... Um, uh, pet shops that had to go back and be revisited because the paperwork wasn't quite right. Two of those were in the Thames Valley, you know, and one of those was, was actually quite surprising because it was actually quite a big supplier. And it's not a question of, oh, well, I've got the paperwork wrong. We're just not too sure where they've got them from. You know, when the EEC um, expanded, what we found is that in the Czech Republic, Slovenia and places like that, six months before they came into the EEC, lo and behold, there was a tortoise farm appear. Well, they were brought in in their thousands to this tortoise farm, most of them wild caught. And as soon as they uh, became members of the EEC, there's not a need for any import permits. And the paperwork, and you can just ship them in. So there was a loophole there that people made a lot of money out of. But again, the, these and chameleons, uh, believe it or not, are, you know, the, these are the two things that are being brought into the country the most. You know, and again, most of the chameleons will be brought in illegally. What do we do for the future? Well, we have a roadshow. We have meetings such as this to tell people what we do. Um, and it's really on the education part. So we, we try to get across to as many different groups. Um, tomorrow, uh, Saturday uh, morning, I'm down in Wolvercut, Wolvercut Wildlife Club. Um, again, a group of young, young people who are passionate about their wildlife. I was in um, Stanford in the Vale two weeks ago with a primary school t a group doing exactly the same type of talk as this but probably a bit more hands-on um, because that's the, the, the age group we like to get through to because that's the age group that can make the difference in the future. Badges. This, again, an emerging issue especially to do with um, probable culling due to TB. Um, that's it's a kind of watch this space. You know, there's been a, there's been a, see which way we go with DEFRA on there, and it's going to be quite an emotive subject for people to deal with. But we do get quite a lot of badges shot already. Um, ones you see on the side of the road, uh, we do stop and check them, believe it or not. Um, I stop and check them mostly to see, one, if they've been shot, two, if they've been results of badger baiting, because we still do get badger baiting. Um, an horrendous sport, especially for the badger. And you tend to the same people who are doing the hair coursing, dog fighting, do the badger baiting as well. So, uh, and if they have, have been badger baited, um, you tend to find they have been shot, but there's a, a huge amount of damage around the bottom of the jaw because people, rather than having their dogs um, really killed and re you know, really, really, really damaged, they break the jaw, the badger, beforehand um, because it gives the dog a chance. Um, but, you know, th this is unfortunately some of the things we're going through. Finally, on the plus side, um, these are this is this is this is a heart. This is what gives me inspiration for the future, really, and makes certain that what I do is, is actually you know worthwhile. This is a group. This these came out of a suitcase. This is a case up in Norfolk where customs officers uh, were aware this gentleman was bringing his suitcases in around the world. He had people bringing him for him, and this time they followed him all the way up to Norfolk. And as they did it, they did a raid on his house, opened the suitcase. And these are all different birds of prey from around the world. And they were pushed into these tubes, basically for his own collection, private collection. Private collection included some um, quite rare monkeys, which again have been smuggled into the country. Um, three people uh, got, uh, each got um, prison sentences in excess of five years for these. Now these birds were so big that there's the only way they could get them in them was by breaking their wings. Um, majority of those were dead on arrival. 
because any bird of prey is normally quite a highly strung animal. Um, they don't do stress very well and they tend to die very quickly. Um, part and parcel of my training is that we do a bird of prey handling course. Now you might think that's a fantastic thing and everything else. It's an insurance. That's all it is. It's an insurance for chief constables. Um, that's purely simply because the chief constable of West Yorkshire got sued for £50,000 because they did a raid on a gentleman's house who had a lot of goshawks. Uh, illegally, they thought it had come from the wild, um, and policemen are not known for their delicacy and tact. Uh, Big-footed policemen went straight into the aviary and said, right, we'll grab that one and that one, grabbed it, and they just died there and then. Um, but those birds had a breeding, uh, were part of a breeding program, um, and they'd reckoned that if they, they were breed for the next 20 to 30 years, probably about, oh, three, four thousand pounds a year, so it ended up with 50,000 pounds um, bill being paid out. So all wildlife prime officers now go on a bird of prey handling course. So if we do need to go in and take a bird of prey, um, one, if the owner won't take it, we will take it. Uh, but normally you get the owner uh, to pick it up. But the question is if we have to get blood samples. Because, you know, um, most birds of prey in this country, red kites, peregrine falcons and things like that, the data, DNA database on those birds to prove they're wild caught is now quite huge. It really is. So we do use all sort of police things to do. Anyway, one of these birds, I was at the Tame Show uh, year, last year, and I had this on the same sort of, on this stand, I had it on the stand like that, and I had a photograph on there. And where I was, I was, I was actually in the, where all the birds of prey were being kept and being flown and things like that. And a gentleman came in and said, I've got one of those birds. And this was it. It was a Japanese steppe eagle. Um, it won't fly anymore because of the damage to the wings, but he'd actually brought it back into actually fantastic, so he could show it. And, and you know, and it was, still could be used for breeding purposes. But it just showed me that there are a lot of people out there who strive and work and actually put some good back into it with all the darkness that comes into it. Because I looked at the photographs downstairs before, before I came up here, and I have to say they give me the inspiration to carry on. That there is a light at the end of the tunnel, because people just see Autumn Watch, Spring Watch, and they have this lovely view of the countryside. And we do have a lovely countryside. You know, we have fantastic things happening in Oxfordshire, but there is this underbelly of darkness. Uh, and fortunately, I'm privileged enough to be able to deal with things like that. Um, I combine a passion for wildlife with a, a passion for policing. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm, I do feel quite privileged. Um, so with that note, I've got some things here. These, some of these are seizures. Um, yes, this is a bear skin, a whole bear. Uh, and this was, um, again, came through the post. Um, a lady um, in South Oxfordshire had ordered this over the internet. She was uh, very keen on taxidermy uh, and wanted this to have in her front room. And what you can buy on the internet is like a polystyrene bear outside or just out the bear and you then stretch the skin over it to make it look like a real bear um, this was quite an easy easy one for us really because it had a box with bear on the outside um, but what you're probably not aware of is that in this country anything that comes in from abroad all packages go through one sorting office which is in Coventry up by Coventry Airport there's a fantastic huge building that all things like this go through that are x-rayed that are checked um, and it's where a lot of drug seizures carry on, weapons, wildlife, both dead and alive, are sent through the post. Uh, and again, what did we do? Well, we just basically followed the postman to the address when he delivered it. So we made certain that she knew what she, she was getting. Cost her £500. Um, she got a fine along the same, the same lines as well. Lost this. She says, oh, I didn't know it was illegal, but it's, it's quite straightforward. Um, you know, black bear, any bear like this, um, it's illegal to bring into the country. So, again, we have things over here like seahorses. Again, who, where on earth are you putting a seahorse in? Well, this is traditional Chinese medicines, whereas a lot of these weren't, some of these are brought into for traditional Chinese medicines. So, that's another rung that we have to look at. Um, and certainly, should we get sort of intelligence that comes in to say people are selling endangered species? Um, such as things like this, which is quite, they're obvious, fairly obvious for us, um, probably not for you, but if you do get, you know, th this is, it was just a medicine, 
But if it's got a box with an antelope on the end, and it's a particular antelope that's, you know, it's very protected because it's likely to take the musk gland out, and that's what they use in some of this. Even though it's a minuscule amount, that's enough for a prosecution for us, really. You know, certainly enough for us to get a search warrant and, and all the rest of it on. Um, so this is a, a, a growing trade. The growing trade is in this um, rhino. I was going to say rhino horn, but it's not horn, it's hair. Um, this is from a black rhino. Uh, this weighs about a kilo. Current market value is £34,000 for one kilo. So much more valuable than gold. Um, what's it used for? It will go into traditional uh, Chinese medicines. Um, aphrodisiacs is the normal thing that people say it's for. Uh, but there is a, an emerging issue with... Um, Within, within China itself, of this uh, rhino horn being produced as part of a, uh, a drug combating cot death. So there's a huge surge for this across the globe. And it doesn't matter whether it's the animals um, alive or in a museum. If we have several museums that have been broken into across Europe, where they've just gone into and they've just sawn it straight off, straight off the exhibit. Because it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be fresh. But that's, you know, there's a market for it. And while there's a market driving such things as, uh, as this, then there's always going to be issues. The main thing that's smuggled into the country at the moment is caviar, believe it or not. That's our, that's our number one thing of illegal things being brought into the country, is the caviar trade is absolutely huge because of the money you can make. You know, and this is led by, by mafia cartels in Russia, mafia cartels in, in, uh, in the Arab world, because a lot of it comes from Iran. Uh, poor quality caviar repackaged in Russian tins now will sell for quite a lot of money. Um, so there's, again, there's, a, there's huge trades in that. So some of the things we, do, we go against. We've got a, le a leopard skin here. This is a Central African leopard. Um, and again, this is how it comes in. They had two in a suitcase. This came through to customs. Um, again, seized. Wild caught. Was, um, it's just been machine gunned, basically. That's all it's done. What was it be used for? We think for religious purposes, to make a headdress uh, amongst the African community. Again, you only pick up the middlemen. You don't pick up the people who are, you know, who it's originating from or where it's going to. It's just someone who's given a plane ticket and hope they get through. But again, you know, it has a devastating effect. And uh, once you put in the emotive issue, you don't know whether it's male or female, whether it's, you know, it's, it's left some cubs somewhere along the line. But again, there's always a trade. Closer to home, we still have a little issue with some gin traps. You know, these have been illegal for many, 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 many years. This was brought home by a cat in Chippy Norton, um, attached to his leg. Um, was put out on some local allotments to catch some rabbits, um, one of several. Um, hadn't been pinned down. Had it been pinned down as it would normally have been, um, then the cat would probably have died. Believe it or not, the cat all it got was some bruising which is quite amazing because if I do put a, if you put a biro pen down there, it would just smash it to shreds, which is what it would normally do to an animal's leg. Um, again, totally barbaric, um, but you can pick these up for five or six quid in any antique shop because a lot of people have them on the walls. You know, most of them say, yeah, they don't work anymore, but these do. They really do, and these are just as powerful 50 years on as they were when they were, you know, when they were built. Um, obviously do come in different sizes all the way up to probably your size as well for, for man traps which you can still get and people are still fascinated with these pole traps pole traps that came around um, uh, they will just sit on top of a pole um, I think there was a pole trap on eBay not so long ago that went for over £150 you know why do you want to buy them uh, again totally illegal um, we've got some other things here if you've got any questions please ask Sir? Yeah. Uh, with your experience, yep. um, if you pass a bit of legislation, what would it be? If I could pass a bit of legislation? Ooh, blimey. Um, uh, anything to do with wildlife offences I'd like to make uh, recordable by the Home Office. This is going to get me into trouble, this is. Um, so, so it, it shows... No, yeah, no, so it actually shows the scope of the problem that we have. At the moment, um, it doesn't hit any priorities that the Home Office put out to Chief Constables. You know, and understandably, police forces can't put the resources in, even more so with the cutbacks that we're facing. 
And even though we're, we're doing a voluntary role and we're not having those cutbacks it put on us, you know, overall, uh, chief constables have priorities and targets they have to make. And, you know, wildlife, environmental crime really isn't amongst it. You know, quite, you know, you can understand why it can't. I mean, to me, it's very, I'm very passionate about it. And members of the public are very passionate about it. But people within the Home Office aren't. So it doesn't hit any, any, anything. So that would probably be my number one thing, is actually to make you know, all wildlife offences recordable by the Home Office, which will then give us a, a, an overview of, of what the real issue is. We're aware of what the issue is, but it's quite difficult to quantify. Um, to a certain, well, it, it doesn't go onto the police recording system, on the crime recording system, so it's not recorded as a crime. That's our issue, and of course everyone goes by numbers, and if there's not a home office recording number for it, it won't go on there. Um, there will be for certain things, certainly for the hunting, because we have the Hunting Act, so all, all our um, offences to do with um, uh, hair coursing and things like that, that's all well, quite well recorded. Um, but certain to do things like habitat destruction of water voles, habitat bat roost destruction, anything to do with badges, even though it's a criminal offence, there's not the Home Office counting rules to, to go around it. So that would be my overall aim, because then nationally people would suddenly realise, gosh, we do have a problem, you know, and, and what do we do about it? But the legislation that is in there is actually quite strict, certainly amongst the courts, the, you know, that some of the things that can happen to you, you're more likely to get a prison sentence for stealing bird's eggs first time up than you are more likely are for burglary. You know, and magistrates are quite happy to do things like that, you know, to protect the environment. Yes, you may. Good question. It's within the EEC. It's, and it's just one of those loopholes that we, as an island, have always had. Um, you know, we have crocodile farms in, in Spain now, where you could, you could drive down there, buy a baby crocodile, put it in the back of your car, drive it into this country, and you have two days to register it as a dangerous animal. No one always knows where these, these things have gone, you know. So again, it's, it's just that follow-on from that, you know. Gosh, um, I don't know because to me it is. You know, anything that affects uh, it, it, it. To me, it's no different than than burglary or or, or or things like that. You know, and car thefts. It's just just as bad for me. I I, I see it and I think, well, it has, sometimes has a long longer effect as well. No. I've got two years. I've got two years left within the police force. Do I think? No, I don't. What, what I try to strive is to keep it onto everybody's agenda, and that's and 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 likewise, officers like me around the country. We we do get together. We do, and we're quite a rare breed. We're almost an endangered species in ourselves. Um, what that's part and part our part and parcel of our aim is to keep it on the agenda, so people do know what's happening. You know, and we strive and we strive to get the results that we do get. So we do work very, very close together across the country. There's quite a tight network of, of wildlife crime officers that we're all striving for the same aim. Um, you yeah. Does that mean that you have to do the work you do for, in pursuit of this is outside your normal... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate, I'm in a position where I work Monday to Friday. I don't work shifts. Uh, I work within the district, well, West Oxford District Council. Uh, as an antisocial behaviour officer, uh, and I'm also I'm fortunate that within that role, I'm given time to deal with wildlife, environmental issues. Not all uh, my other colleagues are as lucky as me, um, because they some some of those are on shift work. They don't get the time, and they just don't have the time sometimes to actually do what they want to do. Um, I hope that my role will be taken over, and I'm I'm looking to find someone to do that in the future, but. Um, it could well be it finishes with me, certainly in th this part of Oxfordshire, which should be a great shame as far as I'm concerned because we've, we've taken a long time within Thames Valley to build up five or six officers uh, who have been trained. It's not just a question, it's you, you and you. And we're given national training, you know, we're given all these animal handling courses. So we, we do put the work in for it and it's, it, it's actually finding officers who, who have the time and the passion to do it. Oh, oh, fantastic. Well, the RSPCA have a quite a narrow remit 
as to what prosecutions they can do. So anything, anything to do with cruelty, neglect, they deal with. We don't deal with that. We work, we will work very closely with them to get search warrants and things like that. And it's the same with RSPB, uh, BBOUT, all these different lo local groups. Well, they do. With their, well, they're, because they're basically a charity. You know, they're a charity with an enforcement issue. You know, um, so it's, it's not a question we won't step on each other's toes. It's just that they will concentrate on the welfare issues and things like that. So if we do go somewhere and we do, we do have some issues, we will call the RSPCA in because it's not within my remit to do the prosecution and they're better placed to, to deal with things. But they don't involve themselves with this stuff? No, they wouldn't. Um, no, no, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. Okay. So... Certainly not with this tough in Downing Street, but certainly with sort of songbirds and things like that, because yeah, yeah, and that's they, they have the expertise in that, and that's the sort of expertise we would tap into. You know, it's um, you know they, they have certain officers that are, that are experts as well, but we tend to use. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, they have, and um, and that's not a question of us taking a step back or wherever. Um, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they have their issues which they have to deal with and which they're empowered to deal with, and some which we would deal with. Um, and sometimes, as I say, we, we would certainly assist with a search warrant or get into the magistrates if we felt that it needed for us to get the search warrant for them and to work with them. And likewise, on the song, on the song uh, bird trapping, it was their prosecution, but we instigated the search warrant and actually assisted on the, on the day and we would assist in the question you know, of, of, of the people involved and retain all the property. So there is some mutual work there. But again, we, you know, we, we, sometimes, there are also times when we say, no, we're not doing that. You know, no, we can't do that. I'm sorry, you know, you know, that's not part of our role to do that. So you know, there is some sort of you know, work between us. And it's the same with the RSPB as well. You know, they have an investigations branch and we work very closely with them. But you know, they don't that they have, they have guidelines which they have to follow, uh, and, you know, and vice versa. So we have to make certain that they don't overstep what they can do, um, you know, because there's, there's a lot of passion in amongst all these people, and they just want to go and do it. But there has to be the legal side where you say, well, if we do it that way, we're not going to get a prosecution, you know, and we'd lose all the evidence at court and everything else. So you have to be quite strict sometimes and, you know, and guide things through. This is complex legislation. All wildlife legislation is fairly complex. So you have to make certain that nothing is rushed through. And some of the investigations can take, you know, a couple of years, if need be. Um, it's not something that happens very quickly. Normally, initially, the response is very quick, but if you have to put a plan in place, it can take over some time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, that's fine. Please do, yes, and, uh, yeah. You can please have. Now, you can have a look. All I would say is once you've touched the bearskin, try and wash your hands, please. Yes. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's a bit whiffy. It smells of bear. That's all I can say. And it clings, okay? So um, that's all I'll say. But the rest, please do. They're not yeah, going to harm you. Let's have a play here and we can carry on with the conversation and um, I'll see you downstairs. Thank you. Thank you.